The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Lots of uh, interesting news coming out of the UK. Uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson steps down. So, of course, my question is, what's next? And I honestly don't know, uh, but our next guest does. John Arthur, senior editor for Bloomberg Opinion. John, it's not like they got a vice premier just sitting there waiting to take no, over. They do. Do they have a vice premier? Yeah. And they, what does no. this vice premier do? You want me to answer that question? Or there, 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 there's a, there is a title of deputy prime minister which has no constitutional significance. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> like our vice president. Given in the past as a sop to uh, disappointed office seekers. In this case, uh, Dominic Raab, um, who at one point got as far as being the foreign secretary, was named as his deputy by Boris two or three years ago and then did actually formally act up when, as you remember, um, uh, Boris had to go to the ICU with COVID. Right. He has said he's not running. He really wouldn't, Dominic Raab has, and he would have very little chance of winning anyway. So there is this availability of, he is a convenient guy that they can tap to be a caretaker prime minister, given that a lot of conservatives now want um, Boris out as swiftly as possible. By the way, possible. Uh, uh, John, at this point, we should make clear to those who aren't Brits or political scientists that mm. it's a system where you vote for the party, not the person, right? So um, yes. someone asked me earlier, how can Boris leave and be replaced by a Tory leader? Doesn't uh, the opposition get to step in now or don't they have a general no. election? And that's not the case. No, no, no. The, the, he, he has been arguing, and I think this shows personally, it shows that he really doesn't quite understand the way he's his own country's political way of doing things, that he has a mandate. Certainly his popularity, his personality helped the Conservatives win the 2019 general election. That's true. But no, he does not have a personal mandate. Each individual MP has a mandate to vote for somebody to be prime minister as they see fit. Uh, there's plenty of examples in uh, British history of prime minister's uh, resigning, standing down between elections and uh, the, the, the MPs in their party choosing somebody new. Thatcher so out, John Major in. It, it was one of the most famous ones, Blair and Brown. Tony Blair standing there for Gordon Brown, and then both the last two Conservative Prime Ministers took over in mid-term without a general election, both Theresa May and, uh, and Boris himself. John so... There, there's nothing. There's nothing unusual about about yeah. uh, about a, a prime minister standing down and being replaced by his party. How about the whole concept of a caretaker 
prime minister is is that just a function of what popularity you have left whether you can remain a caretaker pm until there's another election i i no he's Rob is not going to be a, a leader to, to go into the, the election. No, There's no, no. I think Paul means uh, Johnson wants to stay as the oh, prime sorry. minister pro tem until. Yes, he does. Yeah. And um, I, my opinion, my judgment from, you know, from afar, but I, I don't think he's going to be allowed to do that. Um, basically, the problem for him and the fact that he showed really no contrition and mm. never used the word sorry in his speech earlier. The problem for him is that this isn't about some policy disagreement uh, or some political defeat. It's about the overwhelming majority of his colleagues saying, we don't trust you, you are not personally honest enough to be our leader. It's not and even the economy, stupid. They just think he's a liar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah we, 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 we don't trust you. You're a liar. Go. <laughs> and in these circumstances, if, if the basis for your saying, if Theresa May can carry on until they've chosen a new leader if she's resigned because they know don't, people don't trust her to, to make a Brexit deal. So she's in terribly weakened position, but she can carry on being the prime minister until the new guy gets in. David Cameron can announce he's resigning as soon as the referendum happens, but not actually stand down until they've chosen somebody new. But in this case, it's not clear that you can do that because it's nothing about politics per se. It's about you personally <laughs> shouldn't be the prime minister. You are not fit for this job and we don't trust you, uh, uh, which is... Uh, a remarkable state of affairs, but um, it does make it difficult for Conservative MPs to, to, to serve under him for, the, for a matter of months. Yeah, especially if the Which deputy doesn't want to step up. Now you've got to figure out who. So it leaves a lot of questions um, unanswered. Mm. John, just quickly on the markets, so we've only got about 30 seconds. Are we? Yeah. Is this rally like a reverse ferret here? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> The rally in the pound or the rally? No, in no, in, in markets. I mean, do, do oh. we just don't, we don't believe the Fed is going to fight inflation more than a recession? Uh, I, I, I think basically there was an immense shock created by the pandemic, which has created a much shorter economic cycle than usual. And there is an immense shock created by the fact that at this point, nobody is sure they really do believe the Fed's guidance after two reverse ferrets by the Fed. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, in quick succession. Therefore, it's a natural consequence that the market will jink all over the place. Um, <laughs> all right. I, 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 don't, I don't think there is any clear-cut reason to think that you know, the, the Fed will fold any more than there was for 24 hours ago. I, I recommend to listeners who are wondering what the heck a reverse ferret is yes. to go <laughs> on Bloomberg.com uh, and read John's column, or if you have a Bloomberg terminal in front of you, type NI Authors, and you can read a reverse ferret gets up market's trousers by John Authors. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
Now I want to bring in Masa Takeda. He's a portfolio manager for the Hennessy Japan Fund. And this has been, uh, to my mind, one of the most interesting stories that doesn't get the coverage it deserves. Let's give it some coverage. The Bank of Japan is insistent that it's going to hold rates to a quarter percent or lower. And the market, Mr. Market, is uh, testing them out. Now, traditionally... This trade is called the Widowmaker. The Widowmaker. <laughs> <laughs> you short JGBs, you short the yen, and so many investors have gotten burned that it's earned that moniker. Masa Takeda, are you one of those investors that's trying this again? Uh, no, I'm just a pure bottom up stock picker. We try to uh, make money by picking good companies. Well, what do you think about the Bank of Japan's will to hold out against the market? I mean, can they keep it uh, pegged at a quarter percent, or will they have to let it slide like the Swiss National Bank did a couple of years ago? Um, well, it, it's hard to tell, but it seems like Bank of Japan is still very much committed to the zero-rate policy and yield curve control. Um, now, they're in a dilemma, obviously. If they choose to raise rates, then, of course, it's going to hurt the economy. Uh, we're just you know, coming out of the pandemic. Um, so it's still, still very fragile. Um, if they don't choose to raise rates, but then um, the yen will continue to depreciate on widening the interest rate differential, and that's going to also uh, drive uh, inflation further. So, uh, and that, that inflation isn't going to be uh, good for the economy either. So again, I think they're in a very tricky situation right now. Um, so that's, that's that's my take on just the just pointing uh, out, Paul. Right, right now we're at one hundred thirty-five seventy-two, which is we're, we're hovering around the nineteen ninety-eight low. The last I'm, time we saw this was, you know, long-term capital management. Yep, exactly. I'm looking at the one-year chart for the Japanese yen. We started the year or a year ago, twelve months ago, at about one ten. Uh, now we're at 135, so just significant weakening. Masa, I'd love to get just your overview based upon your experience of the folks you talked to in, in, in Japan. How has the pandemic impacted Japan just broadly defined, and how has it impacted the economy, and, and, and how are folks there dealing? Um, obviously, the economy was uh, severely damaged, and um, um, and also it has been not as resilient as, as we hoped it uh, as we hoped, um, and still enhanced the economy has been a very fragile state. So, uh, as a portfolio manager, I mean, I'm a you know, I'm a Japan equity um, portfolio manager, but my uh, investment style is to invest in great companies that have global footprint. So, try not to put all our eggs in one basket, uh, in one geography. Um, and there are a lot of great companies out there in Japan that have a strong presence um, uh, worldwide. And if, if there's going to be you know, strong uptake in Japan, our portfolio companies should also benefit from it. So that's my sort of uh, defensive uh, investment strategy at the moment. So talk to us about maybe some names that might fit that uh, uh, you know, kind of framework that you're, you and your team are doing some work on right now. Yeah, so uh, you know, our, our investment mantra is to invest in great companies business with exceptional management attractive price. So, um, you know, we are um, uh, a growth, um, you know, growth manager. We're in the growth manager bucket. And obviously, market rotation from growth to value has been, has taken a toll on, on us. Um, but we continue to remain invested in, in our long-term holdings and growth names. But at the same time, we've been actively searching for what I would call growth names in disguise. And what I mean by that is companies whose growth prospects are just as strong as any pure growth name. We're talking about earnings growth, 
you know, take up 10 percent plus. But they're trading at a value stock like multiples due to misperceptions in the market. And I would highlight Hitachi as an example. Hitachi. And then there's another example, another type of uh, growth uh, in disguise where the growth, earnings growth, earnings growth rate might be in the mid single digits, but they, they come with um, significant ability to buy back shares and some dividend yields. And if you add them all up, you get 10% plus share, uh, return as a shareholder. And I would highlight general insurance companies as as, as primary example. I just want to quickly ask you about the election, House of Counselors election on Sunday. What are the market implications of that? Uh, what could they be? Well, it seems like um, the ruling party is going to uh, win the majority seats. Um, and um, I think, um, you know, right now, Prime Minister Kishida, um, he's been promoting uh, so-called Japan's new capitalism. And uh, the market was once spooked uh, by the prospects of um, Kishida potentially introducing um, uh, not to shareholder not too friendly um, policy measures like higher capital gains tax rates and uh, minimum wage hikes. Um, so depending on what policy measures will, will come out going forward, it may have some repercussions in the market. But I would look at it more positively where you know, this is really a, a marks a shift from shareholder-friendly capitalism to sustainable growth capitalism. So, um, you know, we, we should take it as a positive uh, movement. All right, Masa, thank you so much for joining us there. Masa Takeda, Portfolio Manager for the Hennessy Japan Fund, getting an update uh, on the developments out of Japan. And again, an uh, election, as Matt just pointed out, coming up. Out in Sun Valley, Idaho, at this time of year, every year, uh, the good friends at Allen & Company, the investment bank, hold their conference where all the big tech, media, telecom, really uh, cool kids gather uh, to just talk deals, talk business, talk what's going on in the world. And of course, we send out our ace reporter, Ed Ludlow, who's a West Coast correspondent for Bloomberg News. Ed, you're in Sun Valley. You probably went to the saloon last night for a couple of... Uh, cocktails hopefully you bumped into some media moguls but what are you hearing out there in beautiful sun valley what's the theme kind of this year yeah you know tom keen just framed it as the ludlow humility meter there you go television and i i at first i thought oh goodness here we go but then i you know that is pretty appropriate that all the conversations i'm having on the record on Bloomberg television and in the corridors behind the scenes is there's kind of this acceptance that the world is very different from 12 months ago and pre-pandemic, there's public market volatility, you know, they're zeroed in on the inflation story recession. But, you know, everyone is quite bullish here. You know, there's a lot of optimism. They're clearly enjoying each other's company. But remember, this is a TMT conference where the focus is deals and meeting your clients, your customers, your bankers. And everyone is kind of acknowledging the problems out in the world, but saying there are real opportunities in these sectors to deploy capital. And I think that's really interesting. So what are the biggest deals that we're looking at right now? What are people talking about there? You know, I think that valuations have come down a lot, particularly in media and telecoms companies, right? You know, the big king of the hill is the phrase I'd use this year is, is Warner Bros. Discovery CEO, David Zaslav. You know, that merger was successful. Um, he is kind of buoyant and, and optimistic. And it's funny because last year, Netflix, Reed Hastings and Ted Sanderos were kind of those star people that everyone wanted to speak to. But there's this idea that valuations have come down. The consumer has so much choice on the streaming side. And you do wonder whether there'll be further consolidation. One really interesting point some sources made to me last night, and by the way, I did go to the Pioneer Saloon. It was excellent. 
There you go. Um, <laughs> Saturday, according to sources, is the day that a lot of the smaller startups and interesting founders that have been invited present. And one source, a longtime attendee and investor, said to me that he actually invested, has invested over the years in many of those startups that present on the Saturday. You know, there are all kinds of people uh, from healthcare, biotech, transport, mobility tech, and they get an opportunity to stand in front of this just incredible room of people and make their pitch behind closed doors. And I'm told with, you know, absolute certainty that the 12 months that follow, a lot of those guys do receive investment. <laughs> you know, Ed, one of the uh, speakers that I think a lot of folks are anticipating hearing from assuming he shows up as Elon Musk, because yeah. there's a big, big M&A trade out there that he's involved in with Twitter that is really, you know, nobody knows whether this thing is going to go through or not, and nobody really knows it's what he's not thinking going about. anywhere. Not I mean, going, I don't know. So we'd love to hear from uh, Mr. Musk. Is that still the plan? Paul, is let me just get your agenda? take as a former M&A banker uh, in the TMT space. If someone... If the richest man in the world made an offer for a company at fifty four twenty, would you expect it to be trading at thirty nine dollars? Uh, no, absolutely not. And uh, so that kind of tells you the market's telling you right there that it's they don't view it as a credible deal. But what do you expect to hear, Ed, from uh, Elon Musk if and when he shows up? So sources tell me that he is showing up. We're not sure when. We thought it would be today, Thursday. Sources also tell me that he is making the Saturday primetime address. And now that's, that's a slot usually reserved for one Warren Buffett, traditionally, at the Allen & Co. conference. So I thought that was interesting. Yes. Um, Wait, you know, Warren Buffett, like, always does it? Warren Buffett traditionally speaks on the Saturday and, you know, the, the Oracle of Omaha. It's his moment where he gives his worldview behind closed doors. You know, a lot of Allen & Co. attendees that I've spoken to in private say, you know, this is why people stay through the weekend. You know, this is... This year, by the way, attendees are allowed to bring their families. So you have the extra added issue of childcare and keeping people entertained in one of the most beautiful spots on earth. It's very hard. It's a but serious issue for Elon Musk now, right? With nine <laughs> children. Serious issue. For, we'll, we'll get to that. But basically, I, you know, I have spoken to people about it. They are talking about it in the corridors. Ned Siegel, Twitter's CFO, is here. I asked him. I shouted at him, frankly. Are you going to meet with Elon? And he smiled and put his index finger in the air showing one digit but and you know i took that to mean one time he'll meet with him i have no idea what he was saying we haven't seen parag agrawal who's the twitter ceo i have had a number of conversations with people that say elon musk can't get out of this the reverse termination fee is a distraction you can't bank on him just being able to pay a billion dollars to walk away one source made a really interesting point if you're twitter and you want to fight this if Elon Musk walks away, are you really going to go to court for a decade? You know, because that's how long it could take. So I think the consensus here is that he could come in with a lower offer price. And if you're Twitter, at $54.20 a share, if you're an existing Twitter shareholder, you would bite somebody's hand off for that deal at any time <laughs> in the last two years, right? You just would. Like, So I think that a lower price for those involved just to get it done would be a, a good outcome based on what you know the conversations I'm having. So... Elon Musk has another set of twins that we didn't know about. And yeah. apparently one of his kids has, like, disowned him. Really? So how many kids he does has, he have now total? I guess nine, unless you don't nice. count um, his... Uh, one of his kids just changed uh, her name, you know, and gender, and said she wants nothing to do with her father. 
Okay, like so is this getting too gossipy, to, <laughs> Ed? Uh, uh, no. Okay, so a lot to unpack here, but there was a Business Insider report that Elon Musk had uh, twins who are now eight months old with a Neuralink employee, and that was discovered through court filings where the Neuralink employee and Musk wanted to have the names changed so that it reflected the Musk name as well. But why You're didn't they right, just put that on the birth certificate? I don't get that. Usually when the kid's born, you just put the father's name down and... I guess they... Well, two things. I'm yet to be a father, but I also don't pretend to know what is going on inside Elon Musk's mind <laughs> and the actions that he takes That's at smart. any time. Um, but according, if this report is to be believed, and you know, we've asked Musk about it, he hasn't replied. We've asked Neuralink about it, they haven't replied. Then Musk does currently technically have nine children. All right, we got to keep up to date on that stuff but that just came across uh, i mean today. we don't actually That's yeah we why don't it's silly gossipy stuff and i guess uh ceos can have as many children as they want just like a normal person um and he has certainly got the money to support them well he's right? got a po uh, he's got a policy he it's just to fun to keep up with elon Musk. he thinks life. there needs to be more people on the planet right That's he says a, yeah, yeah uh, he thinks yes okay i saw a tweet from him today uh that said the u.s has been underpopulated for like 50 years so it's against consensus, I think. All right. All right. Ed Ludlow, West Coast correspondent, Bloomberg News. He is our uh, reporter on the ground in Sun oh, Valley, Dude, we didn't Idaho. get to talk to him about Rivian. Next time we get Ed on, we got to talk about Rivian. Because we'll they had that Rivian. yesterday. They boosted their uh, production target for the second quarter. Right. And, stock was yeah. up. All right. Good stuff. Ed Ludlow out there in Sun Valley, Idaho. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Get right to it. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO of Quill Intelligence, also at the Dallas Fed for a while. So when we talk interest rates, when we talk Fed, boom, our go-to choice here. And Danielle, nothing says that we're getting back to normal than Danielle DiMartino Booth in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So what is the Fed? Wait, how do? was the flight, first of all? How oh, was yes. the travel? Because last time Paul came here from Texas, his flight was canceled. He was forced to stay at a water park all day. <laughs> yes. Well, knock on wood, because I've got to get on another flight tomorrow, but it was seamless. Now, oh, the one in front okay. of me was canceled because of no crew. That's uh, the thing, man. Yeah. There's no people out there. All right, so what? let's assume that there's a crew at the Federal Reserve. Are they going to raise 50 basis points, 75 basis points? What are you thinking? So two days after the Fed announces, we're probably going to get our second negative print on personal consumption expenditures. Personal okay. income and spending comes out the Friday after that Fed meeting. And that's important for the Fed. It's very important for yep. the Fed. In fact, they're likely to have that data in hand when they announce. And if it's negative, I would argue counterintuitively that they're going to go for 75 basis points to get it into the can. Yeah, I actually have a bet can. right now with Paul and Ira Jersey if they do 75, Paul has to drive me down to Princeton and Ira has to buy us dinner. I started feeling honestly a little bit nervous about that bet yesterday, reading these Fed minutes that everyone said were hawkish. And I got this feeling in my stomach like I could lose this bet. I don't know why, but <laughs> it's not a sure thing. 
It's it, nothing is a sure thing, <laughs> and I think that markets interpreted the minutes as being a timestamp, which sometimes markets don't. Sometimes markets read in that the Fed has massaged the minutes after the fact, if if they have a reason to do so. But I think a lot of people said, you know what, those minutes were timestamped before the Atlanta Fed printed negative 2.1 percent for the second quarter, before S and P Global said it, the second quarter was going to be negative 1.5 percent, um, and that's telling you something actually, because the Atlanta Fed GDP now model kind of broke down during COVID. And now that we've got all the COVID noise out of the data, it's coming right back up to where some of the best models on the street are, and they're converging. And that that tells you that a lot of it, it tells you why a lot of sell side if it's, economists right now are saying it's going to be a technical recession, but not a real one. I mean, it would have to be really far off for there to be growth, though, right? We're we're very likely to see two quarters of contraction. Right. I mean, we, I'm we not saying that's a recession, but. It's a, it's a technical one, but not, yes. a, not a real one. Let's Everybody see. argues with me. Gary Schilling's no, no, NBER has to come out and say it's a recession. <laughs> and and I think NBER will come out and say it's a recession like in 12 months or so uh, because there's a typical 12 to 18 month lag. That's when they timestamp these puppies. But again, we've had credit card spending very strong. Yeah. We've, had, uh, we've had consumers blow through their savings. So we've propped up consumption, some would say somewhat artificially, and now we're headed for an, a, a consumption cliff mm. that's just now starting. That's a concern. So that that's could, a real that, concern. That can prolong the recession. I have a listener uh, writes in, I think he's watched you speak a few times, so he's a big fan, and he points out that our forecasts have been all over the map about mm -hmm. what the Fed's going to do, about whether... Uh, we're going to have a recession, how shallow it's going to be, how short. And he points out we haven't see, seen a quantitative tightening yet, which is a huge question mark. We haven't seen the downward revisions in earnings, right? Analysts on the sell side have still left um, their revisions or their forecast sky high. We haven't seen inflation come down. We haven't really seen job losses. This is all to come. It is, and it's all building up in the system. And yet, when you follow, every Friday after the close, the Federal Reserve publishes the H8 H8. And in, in there, there is a very good, reliable gauge of liquidity. And it has been negative for three months in a row prior to QT. And I, that people need to understand, and Mohamed Alarian's done a very good job of articulating where we are right now in the cycle, that we're heading from recession shock to a liquidity shock. And that really changes the game. So right now, I think that we're still in the midst of yet another bear market rally. All right, so is this Federal Reserve, I've always thought of it as kind of a balancing act between fighting inf inflation, yet not pushing it is into a recession, but now some people are saying they're really focused on inflation, but yet some people say they're really focused on keeping us out of a recession. Is it a balancing act, or do you feel like they have a bias? It is a balancing act, but it's a less balanced act headed into this close to an election. Ah. And so... Federal Reserve officials are really, there's an existential crisis going on as, as it pertains to September because it's so close to the election. But surely the this independent body oh, for heaven's sake. won't <laughs> risk its credibility blah, 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 for blah. the political status quo, right? Of course not. No. <laughs> it's only been politicized since Greenspan started leaking information on October the 20th, 1987 to bond trading desk. But other than that, the play, <laughs> the play was great, Mrs. Lincoln. I, uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. By the way, why isn't Mohammed running the Fed? Why doesn't somebody, he made the right calls for the last couple sure. of years and uh, no one was listening apparently. He, he's in England. Well, he's not that <laughs> far away and his voice is pretty loud. Yep. And 
to his point, he's had some pretty important jobs as well. And and he's had some great calls and he really has lined up the dominoes well and warned us one step after another. We've got an inflation shock. Now we're going to have a recession shock. Now we're going to have a liquidity shock. He's been there the whole time. And actually, because Jay Powell founded the industrials group at the Carlisle, he speaks to people in this world. He speaks to people in private equity. He knows that banks are sitting on north of $50 billion of loans that they can't get priced. Jay Powell speaks to these people. He knows that liquidity in the system is seizing up. And I think that's why they treat quantitative tightening like the Voldemort. It's like, don't talk about it. Just don't, don't, don't talk. Don't bring it up. So Press how do we see? Not it's Bruno. That's Bruno now. Yeah. We don't talk about Bruno. We don't. No, no, no. <laughs> what no, does Bruno. liquidity shock look like to everyday folks like me? Liquidity shock looks like four out of five people saying they're afraid of losing their job. They start to see bankruptcies, and we are starting to see bankruptcies. We're starting to see some of the vestiges of the industrial recession that we're in. In fact, if you looked at today's jobless claims, the the, the state with the fastest rising and and, and to the greatest extent is Michigan. Michigan, Hmm. we've, and and you know what? There's apparently a semiconductor glut in the making. So we're gonna have- Tell that to my Chevy Silverado. Sitting in the- I have ordered a Shelby Silverado. I've been waiting months and months for it. It's built at a factory in Mexico, but they won't ship it to me because it doesn't have the right chips. They're coming. They're coming. And we're going to be talking about an oversupply of housing and an oversupply of cars in a year. All right, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Danielle DiMartino Booth. She should. Let's take a picture and we'll tweet that. We'll do that. CEO, chief strategist, Quill Intelligence, uh, also former advisor to Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.